due to circumstances beyond our control, some of the phone reception is poor, but we hope it doesn't spoil your listening too much. Oh, you can speak to a man on the moon, but to get a decent signal in the Silksworth area is one step too far for mankind. So here we go, show 14, it's a corker, enjoy. Hi, I'm Richie Mackay. And I'm David Bolt, and you are listening to the Wrong Bias Podcast. And on today's show, we've got one of the legends of Irish balls, namely David Corkill. A lot of us know David now for his commentary on BBC. We'll have a chat with David with regards to his career, where it all started, the highs and lows. Also on the show, we've got Richie, who'll be giving us a little bit of a roundup. And we'll have our usual competition, sponsored by Alex Marshall Sports. I will be having a little bit of a recap on, on what's been quite a busy week for the podcast. A little bit of a new concept that we came up with this week, which has been really successful. Right, mate, here we are again, show number 14, and keeping our wedding theme, it's the Ivory. Um, ivory? Ivory, mate, and the only thing I can remember of Ivory would be Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder singing Ebony and Ivory. Bagsy Big Paul McCartney, mate. Oh, uh, yes, I sort of remember him. Was he, hey. was, he, was he about in the? Uh, I think it must have been the seventies or something, wasn't it? He was, mate. He was. Stevie was he, was he in a big band, like? Was he? Nah, 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 nah. Never, never made it, mate. He never made it. <laughs> never made. It. I think he ended up in books yeah. phase. One hit one, though. Then. It was, mate. It was. <laughs> uh, he'd, he'd, he'd get voted off the X Factor now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, at the time of the airing of this podcast, we'll have completed week five of the lockdown, mate. And since our last podcast, it's been quiet. I mean, it's not as if you've been giving away the crown jewels in a nightly giveaway, tucked up in your onesie in bed, is it, mate? Yeah, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? I've, uh, I've really, really enjoyed this week. I've got to stay. Um, I mean, it was actually, I felt a little bit guilty because it was something I didn't even, I didn't even discuss with you. I just, I just, <laughs> I just had a thought one day at the end of the last podcast. I thought, oh, why not? Why don't we do something like a bit of a, a pop-up prize competition? Because uh, I'd sort of, with this time that we've, we've had in the house and things like that, I've, I've been going through some of my games trying to try and tidy a few oh well Leanne's been clearing the wardrobe out had it is she's get, yeah, get, that, rid, get rid that, of this don't even get on to it about Leanne and the wardrobe because she knackered it the other day so I was only just fixing that the other night is <laughs> But I, so I was finding all of these bits and pieces and I'm thinking, you know, they're, they're lying underneath the bed or they're, they're here, there and everywhere. Uh, maybe take take them a little bit too much for granted. And I thought, you know, I, I thought a few people might might enjoy just trying to play for these type of things. And honestly, I said it on one of the posts. I, I thought if I got like 10, 15, 20 names on a night, just a quick little prize, put it through. You know, somebody gets somebody gets a nice shirt or something like that. And it's just been staggering. Uh, and I've, I've genuinely just had a smile every single night that I've done it and I know we've talked about during the week how successful it's been and, and, the, and the best way of summing up was actually one of the gifts that I put on the um, 
the Facebook page the other day with a little cat who was just constantly typing on the podcast. I'll put you on the right ladder. Oh man, it was name after name after name, but then Facebook would like miss a couple of names out somewhere, so I was having to check and double check. And, but uh, no, I mean, we ended up where we had 1,167 entries throughout the week, which was amazing considering I was only opening it for an hour window every night. Yeah. So we were averaging, I would say, about 110, 120 names every single night. Yeah. Gave away 21 prizes. And I would just, just like to thank again, the last night we did a really big bumper one of seven prizes. Paul Foster, MBA, obviously, put, a, put some prizes in, which were fantastic. Die Kingdom from Wales. Uh, Ian Leslie from England and Neil Mon Holland who actually won a prize during the week um, I, I think I used that as a bit of a barter until I could give him a quick email and uh, just asked him if there's anything you would like to stick in so and then yourself um, obviously put a prize in as well and, and just yeah some lovely lovely comments at the end and uh, one of the lads uh, Brian Taylor I think it was who, who turned around and said it just it's brought a lot of people together and, and met new people and put smiles on faces and, and then when we were doing the live draws we were hitting 70s 80s and 90s of people watching that as well so really did put a smile on my face I really really enjoyed it and, and by the looks of it a lot of other people did as well and it just you know broke up the monotony a little bit yeah and thanks go to Stuart Airy and Ian Richards as well for their their kind donations as well um, Sorry, I, I, I was a bit co- I was a bit concerned when the one of the live draws flicked onto your own camera and you were sitting in bed <laughs> I was sitting in bed every night, man. I've got what's going on here. <laughs> And one of the questions should have been, mate, how many pieces will it will that glass ball arrive to the winner? <laughs> well thankfully I could deal that it arrived safe and sound, so I'm over the moon about that. That's it, oh, uh, tremendous. That was a that was a really popular prize that one. I've got uh, a few people dropping us a message asking where that had come from. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was received yesterday, so I'm hopefully uh, by the end of the week I'm hoping we'll have quite a a lot of the the prize winners' photographs, if if not all of them, so I can put a bit of a gallery together. I'll tell you what would be uh, good is if it, if they actually put the shirts on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but some of them will not want to go camping at this time. Of day, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. Yeah. Um, as John Revolta sang in Greece, I've got podcasts there multiplying, mate. We've got we've got Bulls Scotland rock and balls Bulls England the extra end now we come to a bit controversy the Welsh lads have returned after years missing with the extra end and I've actually dug up another one which is going to be more controversial it's a curling podcast called the extra extra end. <laughs> Well, at least, at least nobody will miss them when they put extra end in Google, I suppose. I tell you, really it's just a matter of time before they go the extra, extra, extra end, isn't it? <laughs> and now we catch up with Ireland's David Corkill. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Great to have you on, David. Yeah, no problem, very happy to. Right then, so um, let's start right at the beginning of your playing career, David, so... Um, how did you actually get into the sport? Was it the usual all through parents or friends or was it just something that you saw? It, it's quite started? often just a normal thing really, David. It comes through parents, you know. We we moved out to uh, in, in the mid-60s to an area just uh, on the outskirts of Belfast and, um, and our house overlooked a, a club, a green, so to speak. And, um, and that, every day I got up, I could see the green there and my father started playing and then obviously I came in after that. But, uh, but that's back 
1969, you know, 51 years ago. So it is a long time. Very, very long time, dear. It's uh, 10 years before I was born. Just to make exactly, that's what scares me when everybody I played against, like yourself and others, they've <laughs> so much younger, that's all. So how old were you when you started? Well, I started when I was nine, and the club... It's funny enough, it was typical of public parks in those days. They had three clubs attached to the green, and uh, those three clubs played on that green, and they shared it. But the club that my father played for, my dad, um, they wouldn't accept me. So uh, one of the other clubs said, yes, no, we'll take you in. And I started playing proper league balls when I was 10. What was the reason for them not accepting you, Dave? Uh, just the age, I think. I think they were just, uh, there, there was no bar, obviously, being a public park, so there was, there was nothing restricted. They just decided they didn't want anybody in before a certain age. That was all. They changed their minds a little bit later, not too long after that. But by that stage, I was already playing for Sandown Park, and, and I, just stick, I just decided to stick with them for another few years. It just seems a bit of a common theme back in that, that era. It, it seemed to be, uh, from, from my perspective, you know, I stayed loyal. It, the Sandown Park was a, was a junior club, as it turned out, but uh, but I just stayed loyal to them. And um, the other club, Gil the Hurt, was a senior club. I could have played in senior bowls for a long, long time there and representative bowls as well, I presume. But I had to leave Sandown Park to, to progress in, in my mid-teens. And instead of going to Gil the Hurt, who, to be honest with you, didn't want me when I was younger, I said, well, that's fine, I'll go to Knock, which was um, a very well-known private greens club. And it was only a mile down the road, so it was very, very handy to me, and I, I spent 25 years there. Richard, just while we're on there, did you have any issues when you started when you were younger? No, not really. No, I mean, I started in 1980s, so it was more probably on the green, I would have said, you you young lad, you, you, you mind your P's and Q's and you keep out the way, <laughs> which I think probably all three have probably experienced, I would have thought. David, would you have said, had the same issues in Ireland, possibly? Oh, absolutely. Well, certainly whenever I was on the first club, you know, everybody was Mr. First Start. You didn't use their first names. Right. <laughs> you know, there, there was that sort of respect because of the, the older guy. But there were a couple of young lads with me and some very good ones too. Yeah. Uh, but again, within the, the club environment, we all had to move on. But it didn't stop an entry to an open tournament being sent back to me one time because I was 14 and uh, they didn't want me playing in an open tournament. <laughs> they didn't want the young whippersnappers to beat them, that's uh, what it was. I played before for, um, I played the year before and what happened was I sort of got like a bit of a run, I won a couple of matches and stuff like that and all of a sudden they sent this back to my dad when they put the entry through and uh, didn't give any reason for it, just two guys that run it in the club at the time just didn't want me there so fair enough, that's okay. <laughs> so as it turns out I'm now playing for that club. <laughs> <laughs> after a long, long break of playing with Knock and then taking a break in the outdoor for a long time. But that, that was different reasons for taking a break. And uh, oh, those reasons we'll get into during this. Yeah. Not too controversial. That's... But, you know, it was interesting. So at what point did you start to see yourself as a player to beat? Um, at what sort of age did you think that was sort of kicking in? I, th- I think really right about that sort of 16, 17, to be honest, was the, was, was the key to it. Simply because... You know, I played in, in a few tournaments, I'd done well, got to the final stages when, when I was about 15, 16. And then when I was 17, I was picked for Ireland to play uh, uh, in my indoor internationals. But having said that, I'd already by that stage won a couple of Irish titles, indoors and outdoors. And, uh, you know, so it was an opportunity as well. So, you know, you, you sort of get to be known. And I think at that stage, Irish both had a, young, a lot of sort of young players were starting to come into it. 
Um, I think they were looking for a change, and, and, and then they took that risk. What, yeah. How old were you when you won your, your junior title? Well, it, it wasn't any juniors. I, it was all seniors. All right. You know, we didn't have the under-25s as such in those days. All right. So um, that wasn't introduced until until into the 80s. So it was really senior titles that, that I was involved in winning with the with the Irish fours indoors and outdoors yeah. when I um, when I was 17. That's tremendous. So I was playing with very experienced players and, and um, again, they were prepared to play with me and I was very happy to play with them. And uh, we were we were quite successful. I was watching um, the the Bulls England podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, John McGuinness was on there. He mentioned a particular game that he played against yourself. But aside of the game, one thing that stuck out what he mentioned was that a lot of people could learn a lot from how you used to prepare for your games. Could you just obviously give us a little bit more understanding of, of what he was meaning by that and and where that actually came from? Well, he, he preceded that, of course, by telling people that he had beaten me. But, um, you know, that, that, <laughs> that's my view. You know, every time somebody says to me, oh, I played against you about 30 years ago or 35 years ago, I said, did you beat me? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just the normal lads. That, that's not unusual. Look, John and I are good mates. We've known each other a very long time. Um, and, and I think, to be fair, I, I think my preparation's always been based on the fact that I do everything I possibly can to make sure I'm ready for the match. And then if I lose, the guy just played better on the day. If I come off and think, well, I should have put a bit of extra practice in or it was lashing rain and I didn't want to go out that night and practice, you really need to do that. You have to do that. Now, those are the times when you really should be going, when you really don't want to. And in those days, I was quite fit, you know, I, I was into athletics and all sorts of things and uh, played a lot of sports. So from that point of view, I also kept myself very fit. So I always felt that if I was fit, healthy and done the work and prepared well, I so on the day I played John, for instance, I was, you know, I, I'd actually qualified for three Irish finals and he beat me and he played well on the day. There wasn't a thing I could do about it. And uh, you see, you just put your hands up and say, well, well done, you know. Get on, lads. Fine. But you don't want to be reflecting back and thinking, actually, do you know something? I just wasn't ready for that. Bad preparation brings back bad memories. Yeah. That's all. And um, I think it's crucial also for a lot of people to realise, especially if they're playing early morning. You know, I used to see the guys, especially at the international level, getting absolutely ripped into a massive big fry <laughs> at, at about half past eight in the morning. Guys, you know, in 90 minutes, this big fry is going to make its way to somewhere you don't want it to be. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, don't do that. that. That's the sort of preparation that I, would, you know, what I would be thinking about. But also, you know, stretching and making sure that your muscles were warmed up and stuff like that as well. It, it, you, you sometimes felt that these guys should be thinking this way, but in some respects, Actually, I'm glad they don't. It was something I was going to sort of ask you because obviously with you having the athletic background, you, you'll obviously know the, the importance of, of obviously having your muscles warmed up and things like that. Because we've talked about it previously, you, you still use quite a lot of muscles in the sport. Oh, absolutely. You, you, you still, a guy... <laughs> Up to a point, I still do the best I can with regards to the way I prepare and all the rest, but I'm a lot older now. But I do like to see young lads going out and, and, and looking the part as well. You know, look well, feel well, and play well. Players like David Bryant and people like that. Did David go through similar sort of routines pretty much? Was that something that he was, was quite prominent with? Did he used to do a lot of fitness work and prepare well for matches? Well, he kept himself fit, put it that way. Um, David was very careful, apart from 
from the pipe, of course, which was ever-ending, and the thing never stopped. But I, I think one of the things that I was very lucky, I started playing against David Brandt in the, in the 70s, the late 70s, and, uh, and we were in New Zealand. We were invited down to, uh, I was playing in a tournament in New Zealand, and David was playing in it. It was in Auckland. It was the Countrywide Masters, they called it, and it was very nice. They supplied us with blazers and all that sort of stuff. It was lovely. But the, I roomed with David, and I was only about 22 at the time. So you can imagine this, this, this god, this giant of my sport, and I was yeah. rooming with him. And the one thing that, that really surprised me more than anything else, when you get to know someone like that over a week or more, that the pipe started in the morning, <laughs> and virtually didn't stop until he was going to bed. <laughs> no. <laughs> I used to hear this tapping when I was trying to get to sleep, and that was the pipe being emptied <laughs> at the side of the bed. And, and that was just David. It was almost like a crutch to him. That, um, but he was able to focus himself that way. And even whenever the sponsorship dropped down from the point of view of smoking uh, with the Falcon pipes, he actually would still use the pipe, even though he wasn't smoking. Right. He would actually still use the pipe, and I can still see him in different places where he, he wasn't smoking the pipe, but he was still using the pipe. So it was obviously all part of, of his persona. And it leads into that sort of whole thing of going through pre-match routines and doing the same thing throughout a match, potentially a bit like a comfort blanket. It's something that's there, which is which has helped him with his concentration. That or superstition or whatever the case may be. I think in his particular case, that's what it was. Um, there are other players who are very superstitious about other things. For instance, some players like their bowls to be on one side of the rink whenever they start. If you know that, it's fun because you just kick them to the other side. <laughs> <laughs> so that's always good to know. And there's other things you can't touch, like Kelvin Kirkoy, if he's playing in a tournament, likes to wear the same pair of socks the whole way through to the final if he gets there. Can't do anything about that, I must admit. Let <laughs> you pinch his socks out of his back. Exactly. <laughs> he's a superstitious guy, and, and, and some people are like that, and some others aren't. But uh, there's always ways and means when you get to know against players. But to me, you know, David was, was just on a, on a different level, and he cost me a hell of a lot over the years in terms of tournaments and events. Yeah. I did beat him on occasions. A couple of big ones in particular, he definitely cost me a medal in the Commonwealth Games one right. year. I just had to beat him. It was the last match and I had to beat him and I was definitely, I was in the mix with it for, for either the, the playoff for the gold or the playoff for the bronze and, uh, and he beat me. Not really the man you need to want or you want to be drawn against to potentially get into that position really, isn't it? I'm sure there's a bit of a lot easier draws at that time as well, Jim, that you would have preferred. Well, it, it was just the situation around Robin. I just happened to be in that section along with Rob Perella, who had just played before that on the same day. And uh, Robbie hadn't won a, a, or hadn't lost a match, and he he had two games to go. So it was just a matter of um, of beating me, and then he was safe for medals. And then after that, against David, it was just a matter of how many. But as it turns out, you know, I, I beat him, but uh, not not before he acted up a bit and on the green and stuff like that. But that's just normal for some players. Yeah, I've watched a couple of videos with Robin, and um, he, he liked to drive as well, Rob, didn't he? Oh, one of the best in the world. No, very, very accurate. Played against him in the early 80s in Australia. So good, so good. Different player on and off the green. In them days, it's probably classes as gamesmanship now, David, or...? Oh, Robbie was great for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, he was beating me 14-1, and uh, in, in the Commonwealth Games in 19 Auckland, it was 25 up, and uh, at 14-1, he was cruising along, not a murmur, just 
playing his normal game. I suddenly switched on, got right back to 20 all, and put my first ball bang on the jack, right on the knocking, and he took off. <laughs> he, he, he went walkabout. Did he? <laughs> and we were all standing around the stand around, and I said to the Australian manager and the umpire and the mark, I said, where's he gone? I thought maybe a wee comfort break, yeah. you know, well, the time of the game, maybe fair enough, okay, no worries, 10 or 15 minutes later, <laughs> you're sort of thinking, is he, is, is he coming back? <laughs> and then he came Was back there? and then played his first ball and killed the head. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my God, like, what's going to happen here? This is just, this, you know, what's happening? And, uh, but as it turned out, you know, I, I, I beat him anyway. I think he scored one shot and maybe no more after that. But, um, but players do whatever they need to do sometimes. And, and whether they admit to it or not, yeah. some players are prepared to. But, but then again, you know, you, you take him off the green and he's a super bloke. Probably are, yeah. I mean, you, you generally find the lads that will talk to you for 99% of the game and then you get back at them and all of a sudden they're all very quiet. I think that's the, the most commonest one I've come across. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've played against players that walk off five or six or seven times in the match. You know, they go to the toilet, whatever they do, they tie their laces, whatever they do. But, you know, that's their way of doing it or they slow the game down or they quicken the game up. Yeah. There's, there's all sorts of things which either goes into into management of the game or slips into gamesmanship. Yeah. And it's a very, very thin line, lads, where, where, where you go with that. It's sort of the, the Muhammad Ali boxing, I suppose. He would tell you to your face what round he was going to knock you out. And it was, you know, that was that was his way of sort of getting a psychological edge over his opponents. And I suppose it's, it's very similar in that fact that some players will think that breaking your concentration or going missing for a while will get thinking more about that than, than the game that you currently play. Absolutely, and, and and again, it's all part of, of of their routine or other routines. And I always notice with some players, for instance, they might clap the opponent's bowl. Yeah. You sort of think, mm, you know, in a fours match, you really don't do that very often. But certainly in singles, you sort of think, well, if I start appreciating his game, what's going to happen to my game? You know, but a wee yeah. tap on the leg is usually enough. If I see anybody just a little tap on the leg, that to me just shows respect for who you're playing against and have a tendency to do that but yeah. uh, but others do it in a more pronounced way because and I always remember David doing it David Brand doing it but I just think that was his nature um, but you always felt and this is the, the key thing you always felt he's doing that knowing darn rightly he's going to go down and beat it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you always had that in your head with him that he had that ability to do that and very very few players have that you know the greats of today have that the, yeah. the great players of today have that as well yeah. They've got that that inner strength, that inner look, which says, "Yeah, that's a good ball, lad." Yeah. You're not as good as me. Yeah, it's it's, like, it's a case of well, yeah, well done, son, but have a bit of this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's it. Well done, son. You know, step away a wee bit because I'm on the mat now. <laughs> Absolutely. They always had a presence, and the great players have presence on the green. Yeah. They really do. Yeah. Um, love love more of my mates, and during that time. You always knew the guys that were hard to beat. So, um, if you could pick one moment in your career, I know it's very, it'll be very difficult. What would be your high moment? What would be the the one that you sort of like? Yep, I'll go out for that. I, I think one of the key moments, really, for me, uh, looking back on it, was probably Worthing, nineteen eighty one. Right. And I won the the British Isles singles, the Open singles at the time. All right. And, and Ireland actually won the series as well. And one of my great friends, Cecil Warrington, he won the junior under 
uh, under 35 as it was then, that same year. But, but winning that, that senior open meant that various things happened after that. Right. I got the nod for the Commonwealth Games in, in, in 82, for instance, probably on the back of it. Right. But also, you know, I was winning other tournaments at that stage. But there was one man, and I don't know if you guys would, would recognise the name, but you, you probably wouldn't. But it's a guy called Graham Hurd. No. no, and I'm not surprised. Bulls journalist, but he was a Bulls journalist for the spreadsheets in those days, for the big papers, the Times, the Guardian, just like that. And uh, prior to people like David Reese Jones and others like that. And uh, but he made a call to Australia when I won that, and I only found this out some years later. That uh, he had made a call to Australia, and they were just starting up the what was called the Jack High Tournament, in uh, which was four players from Australia and four players from the rest of the world. And uh, I got the nod for 1982 right. to go to that, oh, and, and, and that really wouldn't have happened without winning the British Isles. Yeah. Did, did you ever get the opportunity to play in the Jack High Tournament? That used to be it was it used to be televised on BBC Two. Yes, that was the one uh, again in Worthing, and I'm just trying to think. The sponsor was maybe Bristol. And West. Possibly. I, I can always remember David Vine seems to... Yes, I remember playing. That was one of the ones, actually, I played David Brand in the semi-final of that. Right. And um, that was one of the ones where I got, got it over on him, which was unusual in itself. But, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I did play in that. And I think, actually, I can remember playing George Drain from Scotland as well. And David Vine interviewed me. Yeah, uh-huh. I, can, I can remember. Uh, one of the great presenters of uh, all time, really. Yes, yes, without a doubt. Another time when my, you know, didn't get a chance to play because of other things, but I've been be banned more than, than probably Higgins has and Snooker. You know, they, they don't tell me I'm banned. All they do is just not pick me for things. <laughs> so they keep it under the radar. Irish Bowls is wonderful. They've got, they've got all these great stuff that they do and all the stuff that people don't know about. I played in it in 80, 81, was runner-up, one in 82, and then I wasn't allowed back to defend my title on TV in 83. <laughs> And this was at Belmont, and I asked, what was the problem? <laughs> I said, surely if you win something, you're allowed back. I said, oh no, and this is, this is absolutely true, guys. This is the reason I got, you won't believe this, you can't make these things up. They said, oh, you're getting too much exposure. <laughs> you get too popular. <laughs> you're getting too much exposure in the press and too much exposure in the TV with the TV tournaments and stuff like that, so we're going to give somebody else a go. And I thought, but I won the thing. <laughs> But then again, in 82, and you'll love this, the first prize was 500 quid. Why, did he ask? Now, that time, nearly 40 years ago, 500 quid now, I did a conversion a few years ago, probably closer to two grand now. Right. But because the way things were in those days, if you wanted to go to the Commonwealth Games, you didn't take the money. You weren't allowed. I always thought the Commonwealth Games am at the sports, wasn't it, really? You, you weren't, if you took money, you were classed as a professional. And that's why, so the Irish Association pocketed the money. (laughs) 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 Got the sponsorship, hell, we'll have that, thanks very much. (laughs) (laughs) So I went straight into their bank account, and again, I only found out this later, and it's hilarious when you look back on it, but at the time it hurt a bit, but you know, that's... That, that, that's only, that's prior to the big ban that I got later on. (laughs) How did that, how did that come about, David? Was that for anything in particular? Oh, I absolutely. There's always things in particular. <laughs> and we find out the reason why in part two. Welcome to Richie's Roundup. A bit like you, mate. Short and sweet. Cue the music. The EIBA have confirmed a new date for their annual general meeting, Saturday the 15th of August at Melton Mowbray. 
the national competition entries has been extended to June the 7th. While Bowls England have cancelled all their planned 2020 celebration matches. Congratulations go to England's John Bell, who has been re-elected as the World Bowls president. And finally, this is a tough time for our sport. A simple phone call to a fellow club member is worth its weight in gold. Remember, it's good to talk. Stay safe. And now we return to our chat with David Corkill. <laughs> you know, it, 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 well, it's like it, was, it was 1990, playing the Commonwealth Games, the one where, where David and Robbie and I were all there. John Price was there and a whole lot of others as well. And, uh, and, and, and there was a great tournament in Auckland. But, uh, but I just lost out. I lost out to David. I lost out in the middle. I was not close getting to the last last uh, game, so to speak. And uh, But what had happened during the preparation time, I wasn't happy about because this is the thing about amateur and professional sport. Although it still deemed to be, uh, by then it was deemed to be professional, the reality is it was still being run by amateurs. Yeah. So yeah. the way I wanted to prepare... And the way the management thought I could prepare were two different things. Right. So unfortunately, I was critical of them. But I was asked the question. See, that, you know, that rings a bell of like Roy Keane over in the World Cup with Mick McCarthy. Uh, yeah, it may do. You know, I, 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 you know, I would have thought Mick would have been professional anyway. But you know, this was, and and, and again, this this came out. You know, very very quickly though this time, and, and I was effectively not picked for Ireland. After that, for ten years, right. Um, so I played representative bowls in terms of what you would call uh, sort of playing for your county. There's four associations here in, in, in Ireland. I kept playing, kept representing them, but they effectively worked like trials for the Irish team. Right. I skipped away, and that was pretty successful. In fact, it was very successful. That was some of the guys I played with because they're all international players. These guys. Yeah. So you you weren't going out. You weren't going out in your stocking soul, so to speak. You know, you were going out with good players. Yeah. And um, they just wouldn't pick me. And it was all down to the fact that I had made a criticism because I was asked a question about how to go, why do you think, and all the rest. Like, well, if, you don't, if you're not going to like the answer, don't ask the question. Yeah, exactly. And, and everybody's entitled to an opinion as well. And, and I wonder how many, how many players years have, have potentially lost that opportunity to re- represent the country or, or play in a major championship for that very reason that you've just got an opinion about something that they don't agree with and yeah. over that period of time of 10 years David, was it predominantly the same selection committee? Yes and then it was one really one or two people that were driving it you know yes. I, I am aware of the fact that one of the selectors resigned over it but, uh, and it was taken the Irish Council actually by another another association within Ireland raised it why I wasn't being selected but it was just knocked on the head because these guys had just too much power at the time you know but you're, you're sort of thinking outdoors like at this time I was still playing indoor internationals and, and various events and all the rest but from the age of 30 to 40 and you guys can appreciate this that's a good age you know you're, you're still fit enough I wasn't married to another family so the dedication was still there nothing to distract me and, um, and from, from my perspective with the experience you're sort of thinking there's big events here and you should yeah. be at them and you missed out I've always thought that between 30 and 50 is potentially when you're young you brush you play all of the shots you've got no fear then you start to learn the game a little bit more and you start to 
pick up knowledge from a lot of top players. And I've always thought maybe 25 to 30 up to around about 50. Those are the years where you really want to be hammering in some of those big championships and titles if you've got the ability to do so, because I would class that as your peak years. Yeah, absolutely. You have that learning period. And, and, and during that learning period, especially the first 10, 15 years, where you're building up experience against some of the greats, you know, the greats from all countries, David Gurley Sr., people like that. David Ward, for instance, uh, you probably remember David yeah. Ward, who skipped for England. Yeah. He just had a certain class about him. He always had a fag in his mouth as well, didn't he? <laughs> fag in his mouth, and he also wore the, he wore the tie. The tie, that's right. The tie all the time. Tie. Uh, the cuffs were down, sometimes you roll them up very rarely, and he just had a way about him. And when, you know, nowadays you're sort of seeing players talking together at the front of the rink, maybe three or four of them discussing the shot, there's nothing like that with David Ward. No, I just went and done it. He just went, he just went down the ring and said, I'll do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody might chirp under his ear, and I used to skip against him, and I used to say it, and, I said, and the boy just said to me, um, doesn't waste any time. I said, he doesn't want to hear anything. <laughs> this, this guy's on a different level yeah. uh, when it comes to cool. Brilliant brilliant skip and um, one of the ones that again that maybe didn't get maybe as much as he probably could have done but he was in a bad era you had Tony you had David you had others you had Alan Windsor another yeah. super player you had players of that ilk that were through there Jimmy Hobday was another one so it was very hard to find a place for, for somebody like him yeah so with regards to you've had this band for 10 years is there any regrets do you, do you ever think to yourself should I have said it or to be honest with you <laughs> It was a discussion of all the players at the time as well, and, and, and they were unhappy about it. But I just sucked it up and said, look, it might well change during that decade. It didn't change as it turned out. But it was quite interesting that whenever I got my 100 caps indoors, the, the manager at the time actually got all the players together. We were just chatting, and then he mentioned the guys. He said, you know, one of the things that David's never told you about, probably, was that he kept quiet when he was effectively out of the Irish outdoor team for 10 years. Right. And even at that yeah. stage, and that's a few years ago now, even at that stage, I hadn't really brought it up. You know, I never really spoke to anybody about it. Because, to be honest with you, this happens everywhere to other players. Nick Brett's a good example. You know, he was out yeah. of the frame for, for years. People would say, why? So, well, you know, sometimes when people ask a question, you get an answer, they're not happy about it. <laughs> but you have to suck that up and then move on, as you say. And uh, fortunately, in his case, a player I've got massive respect for, um, he's back in the frame again for England. You knocked in another British Isles Championship by winning the fours against a, a very handy uh, English four who you played in the final. Yeah, yeah, it's been a big, it's been a big year. And again, <laughs> I seem to be on an unofficial ban. It feels like <laughs> with, with, with the Irish this time in the indoor. Um, you know, I've gone from from being the most successful rink player with Gary Kelly for for a number of years to not being on the team for the last three years. So it's a bit strange. But this year was great. I, I won three Irish titles. I've seen that. And yeah. Pairs, triples, four, and I I'd actually moved to the front end, which was great. Felt really refreshed at that, to be honest with you. And, and and one of the young lads, Robbie Kirkwood, who I've been playing with for a couple of years, um, suddenly it all clicked because we'd lost in a few finals of things, and and it all worked out. And the force was immense because I was with three guys that they're good friends. We played together in different things. Stuart Bennett, Robbie again, and Mark McPeak. Well, you probably know Mark anyway, but and Stuart. But the um, it, it was good. But playing against Sam and Louis, that, we looked at that and thought. 
we get through to the final, that is going to be very, very tough. I have a lot of time for Sam Tolchard. I think Sam Tolchard is a much, much better player than what a lot of people realise. You know, of this era where there's a lot of stars about because of TV, the reality is that you know who the really good guys are when you play against them at international level. And I've done that with Sam as well back in Belfast about four years ago. And we played against Sam and he won the match for the last bowl. But he very rarely wastes bowls. And that makes him incredibly dangerous. He's got a brilliant running shot, but he can play the conversions and the draws. But again, he's in a, he's in a situation where for the last, what, eight, ten years, England have had some fantastic stars. So he's a wee bit in the background, which he probably know in my mind he should never be. And he comes from Bulls family, but he's top class. Um, I watched that game. He lost to Gary Kelly uh, for the for the playoff. He had a chance, actually. He had a chance, I think, with his last bowl. So he had three, three feet to draw it. But on those greens in Delhi, which were carpet, obviously, um, nothing was easy. And, and he just failed. But, uh, you know... <laughs> It, it, it was unlucky, but at the same time, there wouldn't have been too much, much between those two players. Absolutely. Very similar age as well. Yep, yep. The, funny enough, before I, I even listened to Stuart Area, again, another player a lot of time for Stuart. He just gets on with the game and I played against him you know, years ago. But um, my endearing memory of, of, of Delhi, apart from people getting sick and all sorts of things like that, because we were losing crew on the broadcast side every single day. There were cameramen going off and others going off. Um, but my endearing memory was Stuart after the final wandering away into the green next door on his own. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, so I think and was, yeah. I was commentating on it and I thought to myself, you know, if there's something if, if there's ever a vision or a memory of one event, that would be my vision memory of Delhi with all the highs and the lows and everything else that went on I think you know, you know Natalie won the singles and things like that but there's there's just there was that vision of him out there on his own yeah. and, and, and even Bourbon couldn't do anything about it and, and, and he's been very very philosophical about it I think actually if you listen if it's on YouTube if you listen to it you'll hear me saying that Jerry's too wide Is back that, to the bowl yeah. there was nobody getting back no, on that hand but because he was left handed he got back because I think Merv had played a one up earlier on in the end and he got too wide and it didn't didn't go anywhere didn't move at all no. and, and it was only because of the left hander and Jerry Baker's a world class player yeah. and he certainly was you know in that's only 10 years ago, but he was a world-class player and, and a super player, but the guys had dominated the game. Yeah, well, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, he just sort of felt, was it lost in that end? Well, I think Stuart sort of said that there were opportunities before that, but we can say that about all matches, there was always opportunities, but people remember the six. But that, the six didn't disturb me from the point of view of memory. It was his, the vision of seeing Stuart area out in that other green, and I thought, thank God, son, you really didn't deserve that. Yeah, he just wanted to go and give him a cuddle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he's sort of guy. He, he probably didn't have a had a few pints or whatever. But you know, you sort of think when we came back. I remember going back in with with my co-coms at the time, David Bobbin, who's who used to be a Sky presenter uh, as well. And he just looked at me and he said, "Does that happen often?" Yeah. I said, "No, mate, it doesn't. It really doesn't." I said, "This is this is rare. It's not unique, but it's rare." Yeah. And. Um, I said it's it's just one of those memories in the game that will stay with people. And funny enough, it had stayed with me all these years because even before I listened to this year talking about it. So we've mentioned uh, the great David Vine. How did you actually get into the commentator's role? Well, that, that actually started way back in that tournament I was talking to you about. Uh, actually, with um, the Jack High tournament in Belfast that was televised. Right. Because in between things.
things because I'd won the British Isles in '81. They wheeled me in, um, <laughs> sort of like a colour commentator to make the odd comment here and there. Yeah, and uh, and I started then, but. You know, that was okay for a few years uh, whenever there was a local tournament going on. 88, would you believe, we televised the world or we televised the international outdoor in Larne in 88. Ah, right. Something that really I think we should have serious thoughts about because it was brilliant. Yeah. And um, and I did commentary on that because I was playing for Ireland, I was skipping for Ireland at the time. And in between that and other matches, I did some commentating there. And then um, Gordon Dunwoody, yes. who uh, was a very well-known sports journalist in Scotland and and, uh, and also chief executive of the World Bowls Tour many years ago. But even before that, when he was a journalist, um, took me up to, we were playing in, in uh, the Scottish Open, and um, I, I did some commentary up there with him for two or three years. And then it all sort of calmed down, because TV was pulling out of the game really during the 90s, and a lot of big, big tournaments we lost, and a lot of big sponsors as well. We lost massive tournaments. Yeah. Um, things like the Super Bowl with Liverpool, Victoria, and uh, Bristol and West, Saga, yeah. Midland Bank, they were all involved. Yeah. Embassy was involved. They were all involved. And really due to a lot of mismanagement and various other things, we, we lost all of that. Yeah. And, that, and then it, it came about really around about nearly 20 years ago when uh, Gordon was asked, uh, one of the guys in the commentary team was, was thinking about retiring and uh, he recommended me to come in. And I did two or three days of testing at the World Championships at Potters and it was six months before I got a phone call. All right. So the tendency to do that in those days, you know, you, you wouldn't get a lot of feedback and uh, there's nothing like sort of instant gratification that people want now. Oh, was I good there? Was I okay? Well, the answer is, I get anything back, guys. You know, you just you just do it and uh, and they, they they check it all out later and, well, yeah, okay, you know, we'll see. And, and that's how it started back then with a guy called Jared Lane. And Jared Lane was a... Uh, a guy who was actually producing at the time for, uh, well, turned out to be North One Television, uh, and then Chrysalis, they actually took over. But strangely enough, guys, this was the same company with the same people that did all the F1. All right. right. So that was their two sports. Bulls and F1. <laughs> Bulls and F1. Juxtaposition, you couldn't get any better, could you? No. no. And all the same guys were doing it. <laughs> and they loved it. They loved doing the bowls and they loved doing the F1, but that, that was the two sports that that company actually covered at that time, you know. So, and that's where it all started. And then, you know, things took off with a, a number of other tournaments that were going on. There was quite a lot of TV tournaments at that stage that had recovered a bit, and um, and we had quite a lot on the BBC. But you know, it, it's reduced again. Sponsorships a major problem. From the commentator, and then David, we uh, we had another little bit of a um, step in, uh, into something, which um, I'll be interested. Uh, to know how many of our listeners remember about this, but um, you got the opportunity to, to go on a, a game show called The Edge. It's about brains and balls, knowledge and skills, success or failure. I think I'm doomed. Who will play it safe? Don't go over the edge. And who will push it to the limits? I love this show. The Edge, a new afternoon quiz show, starts next Monday at 2.15 on BBC One. Oh, yes, that was a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was doing the voiceover. 
and uh, for for the competitors. But uh, <laughs> that, that was literally just a phone call message that I got when I came home from work one day, and there was a message there saying, "Would you would you do the voiceover for us for this uh, game show we're doing?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." You know, it was it was bowls related in in a very loose way. And yeah. um, it just meant that I had to, to go over Scotland and, and, and do some voiceover stuff. I was never at the actual TV recording. Oh, right. <laughs> and that's that's where a lot of people don't realise when you're doing voiceover. Um, that you literally were in a studio for hours after hours after hours just watching and doing the voiceover at the time. Um, and obviously that takes a certain amount of expertise from the production side. So fortunately, these guys are very, very good. So I was able to talk over it. Um, I wasn't there for the first year. I did the second year. I wasn't there for the third year. It didn't catch on. It's another game show that was tried and didn't work. Yeah. I mean, the, the viewing figures for the first series were something like 1.3 million. Yeah, no, we got, they, got, they got the figures, got the figures okay. Yeah. But unfortunately, when it comes to quiz shows at certain times of the day, they're looking for that four, five, six million. Yeah, yeah, you're right. As you know, one of my pet hates is there's no balls in bowls. Well, I came across this little ditty on the French Lawn Bowls Federation website. Rule of the game interpretation. Players must always keep one foot on or on top of the mat when rolling their balls. If their ball falls into the ditch, it is declared dead. Well, I can confirm that if my balls drop in the ditch, I'll be confirmed dead as well. Right, mate. On our Facebook, I, I raised the question on the back of all these great, greatest teams and greatest players. What do you define as being great? Obviously, me error in me ways in the photograph was highlighted because the wall fellas. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we've had a f- we, there, there were a few replies, and the, the common theme seems to be to be defined as great is what you've won, as in titles. Do you think, Matt? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I'm going to sort of agree with that. I think it's what you've won in titles and longevity. Would I, I would say is is what makes a great player. Um, it's all very well having a, a three or four year period where you you win this that and the other, and you you riding the best of wave. But if you're doing that over a prolonged period of 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. I don't think you'd be anything else but great. When we look at some of the names that we do, sort of class is great. Yeah. David Bryant, Alex Marshall, Paul Foster's, you know, Betts, Greg Arlo's. All of these players have, you know, they've been doing this for a lot of years now and, and not the national titles in and, and world titles on a regular basis. So I, I think I would tend to agree with you for the same line or have you got a different thought? No, I think it, it, it is titles, mate. I mean, it, at local level, I think every club will say, well, he's a great player. He's a good player, and 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 what have you. I like to see people put something back into the game as well for me to add on to the great tag. I mean, we we did get an email about like of Richard Corsi, who obviously hadn't been knocking around for as long as Alex, and probably hasn't done as as much as Alex, obviously. Yeah. But he, he's still classed as great up in Scotland, which you can't really argue with, can you? And in some cases, some say the greatest. Um, and I think even Alex commented about how good Richard was. And I was fortunate. As a young boy to have to have seen it, and, and he he was he was he was fantastic from what I saw of him. I didn't see him in, in competition, but the exhibition that he put in place at South Shields was was just different class. And like I say, I think the one thing that sticks out in my mind is, uh, as I've said, 
I said it in uh, thanks to Richard. He, he just walked up the green and just pinged off six, seven jacks. <laughs> it was just yeah. unbelievable. But um, yeah, um, I, I agree with you about putting back as well. I, I think that takes you from having the respect of being a great player yeah. to having the respect of being a great person and a great player as well. Because I think it will react more positively, and I think you, you get a little bit more when you've actually not forgotten about where you've come from and yeah. remembered your grounding. Um, do you think people that do a lot of work off the green could also be classed as great? I, I think it all stems from results at the end of the day. It just depends what you have done to, to make yourself become great, if, if that makes a little bit of sense. It's got to be something that has been groundbreaking or, you know, people could turn around and say that if it hadn't been for this person, this sport wouldn't be in this position now. Um, so I think that's where, that for me, and there is a lot of great people, um, and I'm not sort of trying to um, degrade anybody who does a lot of work on a you know on an admin basis or for committees or or whatever but i think to me a great inner sport i think you've got to have done something that's out of the ordinary to take it to the next level yeah that would, that would be my opinion yeah, on that side. and um just to just to keep our our women bowlers happy uh norma shaw nancy Excuse collins me. karen just murphy just to keep your women ballers happy here. I don't think it was me who forgot to put the women on Mr. McKay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I hold my hands up. <laughs> but, but I do believe we'll have a point any blame or anything. No, 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 I wasn't I wasn't aiming anybody, I wasn't tying you with the same brush, mate. No. <laughs> you know you know other women would have been the first one on it would have been me. <laughs> oh, that'll be a race. That'll be a race. Right. Good, good job, mate. <laughs> Part three of our chat with David Corkill, it's all Irish. Coming back to the ball scene itself, the Irish setup at the moment. What's your opinion on that? If you if if you want to give it, mm, put a leading question in there. Why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, lads. Appreciate that. You know, I can I can see my neck band. No, just on the, no, you're right. <laughs> um, well, well, have you got a name? Have you got a name for the future? Somebody that we can say. <laughs> Um, is that another lead question? <laughs> yeah, well, to be honest with you, you know, the, the, to be truthful with you, the way it is at the moment is that there's a, there's a, there's massive changes going on, yeah. like everywhere. I think the men's, and, and you'll know this, so uh, David, um, from a men's perspective, the men outdoors have always been competitive. Yeah, yeah. You know, we accept that. Um, more players, more clubs, more competition. The women's outdoors, I was involved with them for a few years, and, and we were getting the figures down. We were getting it right down to single figures against the likes of Scotland and Wales from the days of losing by 70. That's now, true. you're never going to get the England level. And then we have a good year. had a good year where they had a, at home, they had a couple of wins, but they were losing the jersey. Right. And then the next year, they lost all four matches. So, you know, how do we look at it? How do we look at success or coming success? at that level but it's a very very small pool of players yeah. it really is it's tiny I mean, especially, in comparison yeah. to the other countries especially indoors David isn't it I mean you've only got oh. the three main clubs haven't you well I think you've only got three clubs have you Belfast well, exactly it, it, it's frightening indoors it really is because unfortunately you end up playing against the same people all the time but if we look at the women indoors you know a couple of years ago three international series lost by 300 shots or nearly that's, that's right. been reduced dramatically this year but they're still not really competitive yeah. But to be fair to them, there's a lot of good players aren't playing. They don't make themselves available. And there's a number of reasons for that. 
one of the main reasons is time off, I suppose, for the commitment, because they're still playing a lot of afternoon games. That yeah. applies to the outdoors as well, which yeah. I still think needs to be changed. Yeah. But also they have to pay for their internationals. That's right. The, the, the other country's got the expenses, didn't they, type of thing. And I think yeah. the Irish yeah. have to um, cough up The wheels themselves. do a little bit, I think. But the men outdoor are the only international team that don't pay anything, because financially they're in a slightly different loop. Um, the men indoors pay a contribution and the women pay for everything. Uh, it's, it's a sad situation, but I think there's players available within Ireland in the indoor that could make them a bit more competitive if they were available yeah. and if selected. But at the same time, there's just not enough. That's the that's men indoors, a few years ago, they were knocking on the door 10, 15 years ago. They really, you know, to be honest with you, if they get within 20, 30 shots of, of Scotland and England, it's a good performance. The reality is Scotland England play off to see who wins the series and Ireland and Wales, well, they toss a coin to see who's going to get the wooden spoon. I mean, there, there was an interesting question Boards International whether there was time to, to change the format in the home international series. Yeah, well, Trevor Robinson, good mate of mine. Um, played with Trevor at, at Knock Bowling Club for years and he's been a good friend of mine for a long, long time. He came up with an idea for me and I said, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, to be honest with you, Trevor, it has merit because yeah. I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to internationals. I like the 24, I like the six rinks, I like the, the fact that we can bring young players in and, and do things and experiment, uh, keep some of the old hands there to teach them the way that the game should be played at that level because... Let's be honest about it. When it comes to international guys, there's a lot of guys do well at domestic level, but you take them a step further and they struggle. Definitely. You know, and, and we have to identify those players and just say, look, you know, just ease them away a little bit because it does them no good to get picked, get dropped, you know, or at the same time, we need pressure on some of the players that have been around maybe too long as well mm. if they're not performing. Now, the new format that Trevor was talking about was something along the lines of, let's get them out there for four sessions of seven ends or something like that, or three sessions of seven ends. And then, Whenever you do that, there's no time to lose shots right from the start. You have to get into it very, very quickly. Everybody's up for it, yeah. short and sharp. And then, so England and Wales say, play then, and Scotland and Ireland go on and play their seven ends. And then you bring the other guys back to play theirs. So you've got a whole afternoon or a whole day of play, but no one's getting bored. People will yeah. watch and, and, and look at it in a different way. Is it too controversial? Is it a step too far? Well, probably. But if you don't try things, you never know, do you? Well, you know what it's like when it comes to the people who are running these things. The guys do awfully well. They run very well. Yeah. That British side as I was at in Wales was run tremendously well. Yeah. Very, very good. Um, the way it was done, the timings and all the rest were excellent. All of the good things that you want to see, there has to be a belief that we need to change it. And yeah. that comes from the hierarchy down. I like the 24 setup. I watched on played in some of the test matches that have been on with where you've got six, eight players and, and it doesn't have the same effects and it doesn't give the same opportunities as what you you said earlier on there about some of the younger players. I do like the respot now. I thought bring the different dimension into it. I quite like to see substitutions be able to be made during a during a test match as well. It's during a, a series match as well, uh, where if you if you're looking out there and there's a particular ring struggling and you've got a couple of boys on the bench who you think may be able to you could tweak the rink a little bit and change things around. I thought that was something else that, that could potentially be introduced and change things a little bit. I don't know what you think about that. Well, I've actually written about that. Um, I've actually not written specifically, but touched on it as well, that I do think substitutions would be useful. The biggest problem you have with substitutions are that, and you see this in, 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 in football and soccer in particular, how do the players react about being dragged off? Yeah. Now, you know, are they going to throw their toys out of the pram or spit their dummy out of 
or the pram or whatever the case may be. But the reality is that you have to be extremely professional to handle that. Yeah, and that's that's just what you've just touched on there, Daryl, about the your, your local national winners or your county winners, whatever it is. But when they make that step up, that's exactly the the philosophy and the mindset that you've got to be in. It isn't necessarily a case of you know you're being changed because you're going to be dropped. It is just an overall look at the team. And I always say this to a lot of the players. Um, from clubs or, or counties when I'm managing and I always say you are not going to go out there and play well all of the time you've yep. got to basically sometimes battle through a game and accept the fact that it's just not your day you may have a third man who's having an absolute nightmare the skip's going down to the head several shots down on a regular basis and you look and you say well I've got a second man in there who you know he's got a great running ball he could change things open heads up for the skip um, maybe not what that third man's currently doing. So that's that's where I think it could work um, and be a benefit to a lot of teams. Yeah, there's a couple of aspects to it. One I've touched on is that players have to accept the fact that that might well happen. And to be truthful with you, as you think about it, where do you not want to be whenever you're not playing well? There's on one the green. place you don't want to be when you're not playing well, and that is on the green. Because you know that you're not only not playing well for yourself, you're not playing well for your rink and for your team and for your country. And you have to accept the fact that, actually, to be honest with you, this guy opposite me is absolutely killing me. That's one aspect, and they have to accept. I take a very professional view on that. The second aspect is you have to have people watching to identify that. Because yes. there's not that many players who want to come off and say, you know, at the side of the rink to their manager or whatever the case may be, this isn't going too well for me. I think I'd be better coming off unless they're ill or something. And that's yeah. a different situation altogether. But um, we've got provision for that. But it takes a very strong player to say that to their manager. And it also takes a very strong person at the side of the rink to go to the manager and say, guys, um, uh, he's not playing well. You know, and we could change this around by bringing on, as you say, a different second, a different third, whatever the case may be, or a skip. And suddenly the whole game changes dramatically. Definitely. And I, and I see that as a huge strength. I don't see it as a weakness. I think it's a it's a huge strength to have that mindset to be able to go over and just say, I don't feel like I'm performing the way I know I can perform. Is there something you can do that could potentially change that? That involves me being replaced or, or changed or, or whatever that may be. And I think that's a huge strength. Um, I, and, and I think the reason why people won't do that is because the, the, the feel as if they may lose their opportunity, lose the players and the team, whatever that may be. But as a selector, I would actually take a lot more from that player than somebody who's prepared to stand there, throw balls and, and struggle and then walk off the green and pretend that nothing's happened and that they haven't had a bad game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, again, as I said, I was writing about this one time, Bulls International, where I said, look, you know, any player who comes, who would come to me, say, if I was managing and saying, and saying this, the respect I would give them would be off the chart. It really would be. That, to me, is just Definitely. a fantastically strong thing to do. And that player deserves your not only respect, but your support for doing it. So, Yes, they may think that they're going to lose their chance, but actually, to be honest with you, if you've got that relationship with your manager or your selectors, it actually could work in your favour because you're putting the big picture in front of your own individual needs. Absolutely, and uh, like I say, I think you've probably got more chance of losing your place if you were to continue to try and plug away and lose a bit of confidence. Let's say it was the first game in a three-match series and you have yeah. a nightmare that first game, 
and that rolls on into the second game. And we, we've all been there. You, you feel that pressure and say to yourself, I'm really going to have to pull this one out in this second game. Otherwise, they're probably going to take us to one side and take us out the team anyway. And I think you've, you've got a higher chance then of probably losing your place the following season than what you would have to actually just stick your hand up and just say, I'm just having one of them games that's just not going my way. Or like you said, the opposition, the second next to me or the third next to me is just absolutely tearing as a new one. And I've and, you know, just kind of you know changed something or or do something to try and benefit the rest of the team. You know, you're feeling good, you're feeling fine, but, you know, the Jackson illusion to you, you just can't see it. It looks like a, it looks like a little marble at the end of the green and you just don't feel you get anywhere near it. It's an awful place to be, being there, and it's, it is it is horrendous. It just doesn't get any better. And like I say, this is where this is where you've got to go into battle mode and, and that difference between those two levels. You, you've got to learn how to battle through a game and just give your skip or you know give your team some balls that are going to play the worth during an end. Um, they may not be within inches of the jack, but drawing two foot through the head and giving your skip something to cover at the back or whatever it may be. That if a player isn't playing well, to, to bring them on and to try and do something with them. Or if you're the manager, people like John McGuinness, for instance, going bowls England. That's one of the best appointments I've ever heard of because he knows the game. He's played the game at the highest level and he'll know what those guys need because he's been there done it and played at the highest level and not only that he's got a background and, and a very very he's an intelligent clever guy that's a great appointment Wales are in a position at the moment they're looking for an indoor manager yeah I saw and, that the other day yeah you know the likes of Robert Wheel John Price people like that been there done it um, certainly John great mate of mine could have, could have a major influence there but so could Robert and, uh, and, and and to be truthful with you I would have the two of them in the indoor I would put the two of them together because I think it's a lonely yeah. place it's a very hard thing to take on your own Stephen Reese did it for years there and it's a very hard take you also have to take on the fact that you can lose friends very quickly in that situation it's a horrible position because selection is very difficult so it's the one thing I don't want to be involved in yeah. you know if, if anybody was to ask me to be involved now with, with 50 years experience of, of playing the game, 40 years internationals, the one thing I'd say is like, I can see that selection bit. Guys, forget about it. You, know, you do that. One person or a group of people. I'd want to be in the preparation side of the players during the event and then the post-analysis afterwards. Yeah. And if any country wanted me to be involved in that, the first thing I'd say is selection's your, your boat because you need to have a different attitude towards selection. You do. You certainly do. I've, I've found it hard this season. I've, you know, I've got a, 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 a team that are getting stronger season on season, but with that comes the choice of having to pick 16 players from 20, and it's a very, very hard place to be when you're having to make those decisions. And especially when it involves friends as well. And you, you've got to sort of put your, your manager hat on and just do what's best for the team. Um, but yeah. it, it can be a very lonely case. Oh, absolutely. You can lose friends left, right and centre. There's people that, that, that barely talk to me now because, you know, they, don't, they weren't happy about something I was doing years ago. I say, well, that's all part of it. You know, you have to be professional about it. And divorce the fact that whenever players go away to major events, for instance, they're picked because they're the best or perceived to be the best. And they should be able to handle that. They yeah. shouldn't need their hands held. Um, but at the same time, it's good to have somebody at the end of the rink that you can go to. Absolutely. For the, 
You know, they don't interfere, they just they're there as a, as a, as a help more than anything else.
maybe haven't been there before, maybe haven't experienced it. But we were against Andy Kyle, a, you know, a Commonwealth Games player, an international uh, Graham McKay, people of that ilk, international leads as well. You know, you're talking about playing against players who have been around the world and have been around on the international scene for a long time. And as it turned out, the two guys that we beat in the final of the Irish Pairs were the two guys we were playing with in the Irish Fours, Mark McPeak and Danny Stewart. You know, so you're sort of thinking to yourself, like, you're, you're, you're winning titles, but you're winning them against top-class players. That's why I put that on, because I thought, this guy deserves more than what he's getting. That's your seven-up questions, Matt. Thank you very much. And now it's time for a little bit more history. Did you know that the bias was introduced inadvertently in 1522 by the Duke of Suffolk? Apparently, his ball split in two after striking other balls and he took a knob off the stairway banister post for a replacement. The flat side of the knob caused it to roll with the bias and he experimented by curving his ball around the others. The word spread and biased balls gradually came into use. In 1588, Sir Francis Drake was playing a doubles force game against the Dog and Duck, and it was always thought a messenger interrupted that game to say that the Spanish Armada had actually been sighted. In fact, according to the local paper, the Half a Crown, the messenger actually said, Frankie, the away squad's just picked up a six, so there's only one in the game. Keep it tight, son. Aye, thank you. Ah, who writes this stuff? Get me my agent on the phone, quick. And now it's time for the finale in our chat with Ireland's international, David Corkill. We had an email from one of the lads when we mentioned that we were going to have you on the show, David. And you must have been talking about it during one of the Potters World Championships. And it was about on the mat um, and does moving to the outside of the mat to get the ball bending earlier or vice versa. Does that work, do you think? or? Oh. Which is a science in itself. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, years ago working as a coach, one of the first things I would have done would have said to the guys, you know, or some of the girls that, you know, let's look at how you use the mat. And um, I've actually sat in meetings with manufacturers and had this discussion with one manufacturer in particular, and the guy was saying that they manufacture at a breaking point all the time. And I said, yes, that's fine. A test table. That doesn't happen in real life. In real life, you can make a bowl come back a bit earlier to trundle in the head in a different angle. You can go to the front inside edge and that bowl won't even attempt to break back until it's at least three quarters of the way down. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest problems of all was I was watching something from Australia recently and the bowls, the breaking point on, on some, of, some of those bowls were three, four yards from the jack simply because they were yeah. so straight. You know, but you can use the mat to help that if you want to. I've got to hold my hands up and say that I've never, I've never particularly thought about using the mat. My delivery generally been very similar and I've never thought about trying to edge one way or another to try and get a bit of a better angle. But if you look at where people stand on the mat, you can really see if they're trying to help uh, the ball get back into the head again. Well, Paxson does it a lot. He looks to see if he can do that. Other players, all the top players do it. You know, it's automatic for them. They don't even think about it. But other people don't need it and other people think well, you know, if it's a straight hand, I'll just play where I naturally play and keep the ball in. That's okay until yeah. you go to somewhere like some of the indoor carpets where it feels almost like there's a shelf there. You go down a narrow line, the thing dives away like crazy. So if you go to the outside of the mat, pump it out an extra half yard, you miss that shelf and you come dipping in it towards the end. It's, it's, it's not difficult, but there's about nine positions on the mat that you can use to have a different effect. Well, I'm, I'm a cruddy hander, I'm a left-hander, so nobody can follow my line. <laughs> <laughs> 
natural talent then. <laughs> yeah. Before we wrap up, um, one last question for you, David. I know you've, you've been playing for, for 50 odd years. If you could do one thing for the state of the game, what would it be? There's no doubt about it. It's suffering in terms of numbers. We're losing clubs. We're losing individuals. We're losing competitions. It's very, very difficult at this moment in time. I think if we, the only, the only way really for any game to, to, to get going when it's in a slump is, well, first of all, you stop that drop and you, most clubs, to be fair, are doing everything they can. Yeah. You know, they really are slowing the exodus of people leaving the sport. But exposure is the best recruiter of anything, anywhere, and that is TV exposure. There's no doubt about that. That if, it, if you get out to millions of people over a period of a year, you're going to pick up a certain amount. Now, you're not talking about t- picking up 10 or 12 or 15. You can have all the things and all the help you can for all the young players and everything else. But the reality is we need to do that. We need to get it back on TV again. And the only way to get back on TV is money, because money talks. And and Australia have been a good example of that. Uh, UBC Bowls, you know, that's all money-driven. And they've got the big clubs to do it. But if you watch something like, um, as I was a while ago, a state final, there was about 40 or 50 people there. That was it. That's normal. And and those are just normal bowls, but top-level players. You take them to the TV one, and all of a sudden, everybody's on social media saying, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Matchroom actually did it. They did, yes. But unfortunately, the rules were different in that matchroom. You had the bonus ball, you had all sorts of things. And you had the top eight indoor players in the world playing in Potters and then over in Cyprus. And that's... That's the sort of thing that we need back again. But if arguably one of the best promoters of sport that we've ever seen can't do it, and give it a good shout, to be fair, four years was a good shout, you know, so he still couldn't make it work, you know, so that we have got a problem, but ultimately it is it is about sponsorship because if money comes back into the game, we get things on TV, and then all of a sudden, balls is seen a different way. But we do need to change the format up to a point. We need to make it more interesting, more exciting if we can in some of the smaller events and we need to look at experimentation again to make it a bit more exciting and we also need to bring more players from the southern hemisphere up yeah. I think that's an absolute definite because you know in the, the world championship a good example of the world championship the match room or the match sorry match play ladies one player from New Zealand not enough and we're not seeing the world stars no. we need to get the likes of Joe Edwards and people like that up here you yeah. know it's, that, that's a player who is world class in every possible way and people in the UK barely know who she is. So that tournament needs to change in, in so many ways. And, and that will be discussed. I'm absolutely certain about that because it got a lot of criticism this year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and the same up to the point with the open ones as well. We've got a format at the moment which allows people to go into things, but we're still not seeing some of the best players. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about your career and obviously the ball and sign and off the green as well. Richie, was there anything else you no, want to No, that's, that's tremendous, mate. It's been great listening to you, David. Tremendous, mate. I've listened to you on the telly. I've seen you when I was about 16-year-old bowling on the telly, so it's, it's great just to catch up with you. Thanks, Richie. Much appreciated. David and I go back a long way, back to the Stanley qualifying days and things like that, so... That's right. You know, there, there, there's old memories there. And I'll, I'll try not to get you banned again when I do the editing. <laughs> you probably have, no. <laughs> <laughs> Only unofficially. They just don't pick me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not banned, though. You're not banned. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, David. Best of luck, mate. Cheers, guys. All Cheers. the best. Bye. Bye. You Bye. too. Take care, Dave. Well, mate, show 14. Another one gone and another great guest. Definitely. 
Yeah, I really, I've really enjoyed listening to you talking about his career. Um, it, it flew over. We both both commented at the end of the call. It was uh, it was a long roll call. Didn't feel like it. No, it was it was great just to chat to the fella who I've actually watched on the telly when I was sixteen year old. It was great to hear some of the tales and his opinions. Um, anyway, there's currently a virtual bowls tournament being set up by one of our keen listeners, Brian Taylor. Do you want to give details of that, mate? Yeah, he contacted me. Um, obviously, it was in relation to Nigel Williams co- contacting us via email for for the update we gave previously um, in relation to the England Scotland charity match. So Brian's been having a think about what he could do to raise some funds, and he's come up with a, a little virtual tournament. Uh, he's looking for thirty-two players. The computer and the way he set it up will just randomly generate scores throughout a nine-end game. So it's a fifty-fifty chance basically of winning. And all he's asking is that you put a minimum of two pounds in and they are going to match whatever the the tickets are and I know they've raised over a hundred and odd pound about 124 with gift aid I think yeah. uh, which is fantastic and it's, it's a nice little thing it's been taken you know it's obviously been taken to the people have um, seen it and been interested and it's just a little bit of light-hearted fun and speaking of charities uh, I do believe you're going to do a little bit of a run mate in aid of the 2.6 for disability balls England I am yes I am indeed I'm really really looking forward to this so bad so bad nice. yes <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously, during these competitions that we did during the week, I said, you know, I'd seen the updates from Disability Boards England, and, and I thought, right, let's see if I can get any invest for £50 for us to do 2.6 miles. A couple of people jumped straight on there, and I sat long and hard, and I thought, you know, there was just my physical state is in much, some shape or form going to get me 2.6 miles in one fell swoop. So I thought, well, I want to combine two things, and I want to boost my fitness, and I want to get myself ready for when we do eventually get back outdoors uh, or indoors whichever that is and so I just thought the London Marathon is cancelled and what, instead of the 2.6 why not do the 26 miles so I put a, a GoFundMe link on uh, on our page and I'm really thankful to everybody who's sponsored so far and I will be starting that on the 1st of May and the equivalent of 26 miles is 106 laps of the athletics track so that is what I'm going to be doing luckily I've got a, a track right next to me so I'm going to be going down there and I will just gradually build it up from probably two laps initially, then up to three, then up to four, and hopefully I'm, I'm aiming to try and complete it in around about 15 to 20 days, which for me will be a, a feat in itself because I am not a good runner. I'm not in any physical state. So Have we, have we got oxygen standing by? Have we got St John's Ambulance ready? Well, honestly, we're going to need something. And, and the biggest lap's probably going to be that I'm stupidly going to give some live updates after I've finished the run, so... I will be blown out my backside. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't, hey, well, didn't yeah. it be video on you blown out your backside bit? We'll have to put a parental guide on it. <laughs> if nothing else, I'll get I'll, I'll get through one way or another. If anything happens, injury-wise or anything like that, I will walk it if I need to, but I will do the 26 miles. 
And um, if anybody would like to put, uh, you know, a pound, five pound, whatever it may be, that would be much appreciated. And it's going to a great cause. Disability Bowls England, who, who don't receive any funding and have got to generate their own funds as well. Oh, tremendous, um, mate. Tremendous. Well, I've well, done me 2.6 for you. I sponsored you 2 and 6. Fantastic. Thank you, mate. 2 and much 6. All, all the money. Let's get Run Forest Run, Run Bolty Run. Let's get them out there. <laughs> Let's get him out there. Great, mate. Watch what you're doing, though. Because um, it'll be a long old podcast if I've got to do it by myself. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you'll get me breath back by then. Great. And there was one other thing um, Vipers TV, mate. A little dabble into YouTube for yourself, Shane's lads. Hi, um, Ian Richards is on furlough at the moment, so he has basically been taking a bit of time. And we've had a couple of brief discussions in the past about potentially videoing a few games in the club because we get, you know, we get some cracking national games and things like that in there, um, both male and female. So Ian, during his um, downtime, has, has gone out and purchased some equipment, and we're going to make it a bit of a, a TV on um, YouTube. So going to provide things like player interviews and uh, meet the staff look around the club and hopefully video some matches and you know just do some different things and we, we might even show our faces and, and do a little bit on there ourselves mate. So hopefully it's just something new and again it's a, one of these things that rebrand that we did we're hoping that it might be if it seemed to be effective then other clubs might follow and again just try and push the sport in a different direction well that's right I mean I mean it's it's, it's like the same as this isn't it when we, we started the podcast we didn't know obviously there was a podcast earlier on in its entirety but um we kicked this off and this has been this has gone well so i'm sure with the vipers tv it'll probably go well as as, as well that well we talked about it during david's interview didn't we if you don't try something you never find out that's so right if it, if it, we always said if it fell flat in its face then what's the worst that could happen we just you know turn the microphone off and say we tried that's right didn't work move on to something different so mm-hmm. hopefully it'll come off and uh, worst case scenario we'll, we'll get a few bits of balls live stream and um, people will enjoy tuning in so yeah. we've had quite a few subscribers already and it's free so it doesn't cost anything so just we'll, we'll stick a link on the Facebook page for people to subscribe to it and, and dabble it and have a look at it um, and, and I hope it'll be a success for you because like you said something new something good for the game any any exposure has got to be good for the game I don't care whether it's good or bad well that's number 14 done and dusted mate I'll just nip off and make some sandwiches and uh, a packed lunch so I can get all this said and done <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've got a job enough on yeah. that one to do but, but uh, um, I'm sure everybody who listens will, will have enjoyed it as much as what we did listening to David he was um, a very interesting gentleman with a, with a very uh, sort of informative career of a lot of things that he's yeah. done so. right okay then, well watch what you're doing with your run and uh, we'll catch us everybody next time Thank you for listening and hope you've enjoyed the show. This has been a dodgy production.